Hey, Rudy, welcome to another episode of uh, the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Uh, we bring you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. Uh, I'm James, and with me today, I have Jessica and Hugh from the Somex team, and we have a special guest with us, Janaid Hussain. Uh, Janaid is a practicing GP and is producing quite a lot of LinkedIn content at the moment, uh, which is both interesting, uh, insightful, and sometimes quite provocative. And so he is very welcome on the Health Tech Podcast with uh, his opinions, which are straight to the point. Uh, looking forward to uh, having a chat, Janaid, and uh, figuring out where some of this comes from, uh, <laughs> like what you're up to. Um, but yeah, welcome. How are you doing? Uh, thank you, James. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> thank you for having me having me on. Yeah, um, just a quick introduction for everyone who's listening. So I'm I'm a practicing GP based in, in Birmingham, uh, in the, the UK, and uh, I'm also sort of gravitating into digital health um, through. There's a long backstory to it, but essentially gravitating to into digital health, um, digital health consultancy, and also my own startup, which is sort of. I put it back into stealth mode a little bit because I think I came out with it too early. But it's around men's uh, mental uh, mental health. Um, but but in any case, I I have opinions based on the fact that I see things going wrong, and I just wonder why, and I wonder why people don't listen, and why perhaps sometimes whether it's tech or whether it's other clinicians or whether it's organizations, just don't pay enough attention. So I I, I shout it out on LinkedIn in the sheer hope that someone might might listen, and in the even bigger dream that someone might give me some money to even, to even do something with it which is a uh, still a dream amazing it's uh it, it's an, an, a noble cause my friend uh i think yes anything that we can do to help what you're talking about really is communication between different groups and anything that we can do to smooth that over to make sure that different groups listen to each other feel heard feel understood and actually just increase that understanding between all those different groups that's how we're going to advance so much of health tech um and there are many ways to skin this cat and i think you are certainly adopting one strategy on linkedin which is actually just calling out the obvious and actually just saying what you think and i think fair play to you you're doing a heck of a job and it's making a lot of people stand up and uh, take note so um yeah, looking forward to hearing your opinions on some of this news, man. So uh, let's get into it. So our first story this week is from Future Scott. And the headline is NHS staff in Scotland say technology is key to future healthcare. Um, from the land of stating the obvious, perhaps, but uh, with big data and analytics, digital apps and remote monitoring coming top in an innovation survey, uh, that is what NHS staff in Scotland believe. So, Janaid, you've had a read of this. Uh, what do you think? Is it from the land of the obvious, or have you, <laughs> is there something else, <laughs> something else going on here? Uh, I think the leading question that probably gives you the answer. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, it, the cynic in me, which is about 99% of me, um, says oh, yeah, so it's an obvious questionnaire, which I hope uh, they didn't spend too much taxpayers' uh, money on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the the it, 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 it's a, it's like a no shit Sherlock type of a uh, type of you know uh, analysis here in terms of all staff and NHS staff and healthcare staff, whether it's in the UK or otherwise, know that tech is going to be a huge part of healthcare going forward. Um, how much each person knows or how much each person understands is a, is a different story. Um, but then they are familiar with the fact that things are just not working the way they should do and clearly things need, need to improve. So this, this article uh, you know, uh, covers that. The, um, 
uh, and, and, and the questionnaire which is done by Dame Anna Dominiczak, I hope I pronounced it right. Um, and her sort of the key takeaway for response from the questionnaire, which was asking uh, all the NHS staff regarding you know their thoughts about digital apps and, and analytics and big data. Uh, the the key sort of takeaway that she got was that the uh, staff were keen to identify, develop, and, and sort of pioneer integration um, in in healthcare. Now, now the the sort of from an analysis um, point of view with this, I mean, what, one of one of the one of the things that everybody, whether it's tech companies or otherwise, need to understand is that everybody who works in healthcare, everybody in the world, almost is familiar with technology in some form or another. We have we have the most complicated and sophisticated technology within our pockets in the, in the form of phones and whether it's people who've played you know when they were younger playing video games or whatever we, we've seen and we've understood how how you know how things interact with each other and and what what I would say with respects to to and adding on to what Dame uh, Anna said um, is that it's absolutely essential that people who are in healthcare are really bought in from the beginning and not not assumed to be dumb with respect to whether technology or with respect to implementing technology and, and, and the thought of as an afterthought. So what happens generally or what happens often that I see is that technology companies come into uh, the healthcare system and they'll partner with either senior management or senior management plus or minus one or two sort of senior clinicians who may or may not be on the coal face of healthcare. Um, and then they'll have, you know, big back and forth and ni- nice conversations and they'll come up with some sort of digital or tech um, intervention um, and then that, that's then pumped out the problem is that the staff on the front line who are using that day in day out are an afterthought in how it's used or and, or what it does and then they don't have what what Dame Anna did now they don't have an outlet to express that so what we do maybe you remain remember from your SHO days uh, James what we tend to do when we were on the wards is where technology didn't work we just um, scribble it on a piece of paper and bridge the gap or in my case scribble uh, scribble it on my, the palm of my hand and then wash it off when I get home um, so the, the the danger is if if if, um, if tech or and and all stakeholders whether it's NHS leaders healthcare leaders whether it's whoever it is if they don't if they don't interact with um, frontline front NHS staff you're going to have products that are not um, are not going to be suitable and are not going not going to really fulfill the job that they need they need to do. So yeah, so coming back to this this research in terms of staff wanting you know uh, technology to be a, a more integral part, they understand why they understand the the benefits. They see the vision behind different types of technology. Whether whether they've seen it in healthcare or not is a different matter. But they've they've seen how technology can work, and it's absolutely essential uh, that this research is understood by by not just NHS Scotland, but NHS England, you know, Wales, United States, Spain, and anywhere else, because they need to, they need to really um, avoid the, the traps that, that many organisations have been falling into historically, mm. if that makes sense. Mm. It does. You mentioned a couple of things there, actually. You mentioned assumptions around technology companies when they are building for healthcare. And the adoption of those technologies in healthcare, you know, making assumptions around 
the I mean I was going to say the market, but that seems a bit like jargony. But it's it's really it's really more kind of local and obvious than that. It's like assumptions around those individuals that you're expecting to then use that tech, or assumptions around the individuals that you're expecting to um, purchase it, or anywhere along that chain, but essentially the users, right? Making assumptions around the users, I think, is a trap that I definitely saw play out, even as a clinician. I can remember, actually, when I was an anesthetist, um, we had this company come in. So you use a lot of drugs and anesthetics, right? You use loads of different drugs, and, and they're all in categories, whether they're like the anesthetic drugs themselves, whether they're painkillers, whether they're anti-emetics. There's all these different drugs, and, and you have stickers that you put on the drugs with the drug name. And... Uh, they're different colors for different types of drugs so that you don't end up giving four different opioids at the same time. You've got an opioid, an antiemetic, or this or that. And it's a nice system. It's really practical. It, it, it really works. There was a company that came in that trialed in one operating theater. They trialed not only having the drug name on, on the sticker that you put on the syringe, but a barcode. And that barcode, you can then you could, you'd then scan all of the syringes to, to sort of confirm that you're using that drug in this operation. That's then tagged to that operation, but then it's a form of inventory as well. So then you're linking how much drug you've got left to this thing. Now, in theory, that makes a load of sense. Uh, but the volume of extra work practically that that is it's a different size of sticker to begin with which actually really affects like a, t a small two mil syringe and actually no longer can this thing fit around and actually the barcode works so that was an immediate problem it was just like well this is weird like now the now the thing doesn't fit like it normally fits like that's odd and then now you're expecting a clinician to not only deliver an anesthetic but to be some sort of like scanner of syringes and all of a sudden like you can see that there was a disconnect because all they would have needed is one anesthetist to go into that company and be like this is a massive waste of time guys and I, let me give you 15 reasons why like this is just not happening but the clinical director of the department who delivered very few if any anesthetics had convinced himself this was a fantastic idea and was in that theater himself trying to convince himself that this was fantastic and then trying to convince other people that it was fantastic and literally the entire department was just like you, you you're on something here mate like this is just this is just an absolute like this is ridiculous like in terms of the operational difficulty this is now causing us so i completely understand what you're saying around assumptions but also the other part of what you said which is building with the people that you're then moving into and i think we talk we can talk about this a lot with venture funded startups that are trying to get this massive scale and all this sort of stuff but ultimately it comes down to this it comes down to an interaction in one department in one operating room and with one clinician in this example it comes down to that and actually you can make these massive assumptions around what if these barcodes were used in this way and we got the scale needed to move to the US and we did this across hundreds of thousands of operating theaters and can you imagine the data can you imagine the operational efficiencies can you imagine that data going back to the hospital and everything that we can do and the, and the what ifs can just keep going and it's infinite but actually, it, it all hinges off this tiny little interaction, which is actually just the clinician's not going to do it. And the whole the whole of that value up there is now is now is now just falling apart because nobody they've made too many assumptions. Nobody's actually built it with a clinician. And it's so funny that like you just you just see these things playing out, don't you? And I know that's the sort of content you're putting out on LinkedIn right now. This sort of like frustration of like why. Why is this stuff not thought about? And I, I feel you. I hear you on it because, like, I've been there, and I remember that so vividly in that anaesthetic room and in that department, like going through that stuff.
one of my recent uh, posts was about um, the problem that companies start to have between having a vision versus actually a problem to solve. So the vision is that we want to provide safety in the anesthetic department by, you know, by making, you know, putting interventions in place that will make anesthetic delivery safer. But they, they don't look at the actual problem, which is that, you know, what, what is actually going wrong that's causing you to want to do that and focusing on that specifically rather than the more broader picture is we want to make anesthetic safe or we want to make medicine safe um, because that will come later. And, and unless you're Google or Amazon, um, you're not going to have the money or the, or the firepower to be able to execute a vision immediately. You need to start off with a problem and show that you're able to demonstrate that you're solving that, that problem. So that, that's why it's so important to connect with, as you said, with, with clinicians. Um, or not just clinicians, NHS staff who are there using it day in, day out, who literally within seconds can say to you, no point wasting 20 grand, 50 grand, 100 grand, how much more of your venture capital money and time and tears and, and so on uh, on uh, on this when it literally won't work. Tara Humphrey actually put out a really interesting post that was very much in the same vein as this earlier today. Um, and it was it was focused a little bit further along, I guess, in the journey of product development. It was more around sales and it was very much focused around primary care. And ultimately, what she was saying is exactly as you were, that, you know, when you're coming to talk to whether it's clinicians, whether it's practices or PCNs and and explaining to them what your product does and the benefits that it can have. If you don't truly understand the context within which those people exist and those problems exist, you're at risk of alienating them. And I think I said to Tara that ultimately it sounds like really all of this comes down to communication and bringing in the right people and communicating with the right people and also getting the right people to help you communicate in the right way. And part of that is listening. And I think people forget that really crucial step in communication that actually in order to communicate and truly understand, you have to listen first and you have to listen to the right people. And therefore it's about listening to the people who are experiencing those problems every single day in a very visceral way. Um, and so, yeah, I do think it's really interesting, like seeing Tara's perspective this morning further down, uh, I guess, that journey, as well as hearing from from you right from that kind of product development piece, having that, whether it's clinical input or, as you said, the input of the people using it, NHS teams right from the very beginning is so critical to the success of any solution that people are creating. And I think sometimes people get carried away with the fact that they feel like they have this great idea and run with it and then they do that listening step way too late i think pcns or these buyers essentially don't necessarily help themselves either um because they don't again involve the often or don't involve the staff who will actually be using it so management or clinicians who work in higher higher structures within within a, a larger hierarchy they may not necessarily be the ones who are using it uh, yet they buy it and then they're in a contract for how many years and stuck with it and, and the companies who will produce the product are happy because they've, they've been paid and uh, essentially they've been validated. They've been told, you know, your product is great. We're taking it off you and we're going we're gonna to spend it. Spend my, spend, we're going to spend money on it and we're going to, to implement it. Um, and so the, the, the end user gets stuck with uh, a, a product that isn't necessarily fit or perfect or good or that useful or, or as useful as it could be. It might be useful. It might produce, I don't know, 5% or 10% efficiency saving. But with a slight tweak, it could produce a 20% or 30% efficiency saving um yeah so so then they get lumbered with it and then what happens is what happens historically where frontline staff will just 
carry on with the job with whatever tools I've got and, and mitigate the, the, the problem by using manual methods, like writing stuff on a piece of paper. And, and that sort of, sort of defies the point of then digitally, digitally transforming healthcare if you end up you know, literally papering over the cracks. Not an easy problem to solve this. Uh, people obviously wanting to do their best and people wanting to make those purchases to make the lives of, of the staff that work in those sites, those regions easier. But addressing this disconnect between the technology build and the practicality of it being used is just in, in, incredibly important. Our next story today Sounds familiar, this. Amazon and 3M will use generative AI to ease documentation for healthcare providers. We've heard things similar from Google, from Microsoft, Amazon getting in on the act now too. So late last week, two of the world's most famous companies, Amazon and 3M, have announced this bold partnership aimed at solving one of the most critical pain points for healthcare providers, which is clinical documentation. Amen. Uh, and through this partnership, 3M Health Information Systems will partner with AWS to advance its M-Modal Ambient Intelligence Service. That sounds cool, doesn't it? Company describes this as a tool which uses conversational artificial intelligence and ambient intelligence to automate clinical documentation, thereby making documentation a byproduct of the patient visit and not a separate burdensome task for the physician. Janaid, you're a physician. How does this sound to you? It sounds wonderful if executed perfectly. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, a big massive if executed perfectly, I think there. Um, so the, these uh, 3M, um, I've got this sort of modal uh, um, fluency align technology and they're combining with Amazon. You've got a transcribe, a medical transcribe technology um and they're going to basically whether what i understood from it at least was they're going to try and have technology in such a way that you can have a conversation with your patient concentrate wholly on them and the the ai or the tool will essentially document or summarize the the bulk of the consultation for you thereby you're not having to stare at your computer you can focus on the patient um in theory great um but that, i think there's a massive number of questions we have with respect to uh, to this a huge amount um when you look at some of these technologies like microsoft have combined with nuance which is uh, used to be drag and dictate when you look at these sort of um if you youtube or google some of the 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 products you'll see you know a standard middle class americanized uh, voice um being transcribed so if you've got a a consultation that has you know God forbid, someone from Birmingham like me, um, <laughs> or you know, a Liverpudlian who has got has got a strong, you know, has got a strong uh, uh, instead of a k, so they've got back pain rather than back pain, and so on. How on earth are they going to re for real life patients? My question, my initial question: How on earth are they going to, uh, you know, take into account all those different nuances? And okay, it's, it's an American-based company, so let's take the Hispanic population. You've got an accent in the United States, and so on, and immediately. Immediately for me, questions around around digital equity uh, come into play. So if you've got an, a middle class, a middle of the road, you know, very well enunciated uh, person speaking uh, to the clinician, or the clinician has the same sort of you know uh, middle of the road accent, which presumably is going to be the first sort of target, then you're already excluding a massive amount of people. You know, what about the people who really need healthcare who don't have that, you know. Um, uh, you know, the whole unable. You, unfortunately, I'm sorry. You need to speak more clearly because we can't understand your your accent. The, the robot can't understand it, and therefore, 
Do you know what I mean? And, and that, that whole cycle, so we autom- automatically begin to get into the land of digital exclusion unless they figure out a solution for that, which I can't see uh, And uh, initially. And, and then when you go further down the line, um, and let's say even if it, even if for sake of argument, even if it does work for some, by some miracle, the question that comes to my mind is what is the actual problem that they're trying to, to, uh, to solve? Because, and, and, and what is the amount of effort they're going to put in and the amount of money they're going to put in um, gonna, from a business case point of view, really prove uh, you know relevant for them or doable for them? Because clinicians, we're used to typing. We many clinicians now touch type, uh, and 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 we you know, and if I'm having to question or guess or be un, you know not be 100% sure with the AI that's that's being recording my documentation, I'm gonna have to go back to the screen, double check whether everything's okay, uh, make sure they haven't you know. Uh, you know, uh, written something down wrong, and 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 again comes back to another point. If 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 the AI misinterprets something, so I mean, in the UK, uh, as a as a in a relatively young sports clinician, I get called by older older patients, often older ladies, say hello chicken, hello hello duck, hello cock, God forbid. How how is um how is that going to be you know uh, transcribed? So so all these sorts of variables are in there. I think it's just too much. I think it's too many. <laughs> I like the I like the ambition. Yeah, they think the patient's that, that, got like Wernicke's encephalopathy or something. Encephalopathy, like they <laughs> 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 think they think this doctor's a chicken. Oh my god! <laughs> well, do, do you know what I mean? It's just like I mean the incorporating slang, incorporating you know the way normal people speak or people across the population speak is different to what you see. What I've seen of these companies where they have a, a very middle of the road. I know accent um, that's, that enunciates perfectly, and then can, the AI can pick it up. So I, I just I'm just interested to see how they, how they will actually get around these these big problems. I find it so interesting that any time we talk about AI, it ultimately comes down to two things that we keep discussing, which is bias in AI and how do we mitigate for that. Otherwise, we're at risk of exacerbating health inequities and also accuracy. And I think it's certainly listening, as we just talked about, to clinicians, that the accuracy piece is really front of mind because that trust, as we always say, is so important to uptake and usage of any type of solution. Um, and having conversations with the people who are using it to understand that actually what some of those barriers are to its use. And if there is a question over the accuracy for whatever reason, and whether that's because of the bias that is built into the product, then yeah, I don't know. I just feel like we keep coming back to these two topics. Um, and I haven't seen any company or tech team satisfactorily address that apart from saying it will get better over time I, I, I genuinely just don't know what the answer is here but I just find it interesting we keep coming back to these topics and accuracy is so important here with with uh, documentation for, for two reasons I mean clinicians document for, for two reasons one is because we want to you know document the, the patient journey and when I when I look at a patient's notes I want to see what the other doctor has done and even when I see what another doctor's done, I won't necessarily agree with what the other doctor's done. Um, we all have different opinions, and I'll I'll review my my patient on the basis of my my own thoughts, whilst whilst taking into account what the previous clinician has done. So that's one reason why we have we have uh, documentation. The other is a medical legal reason. So God forbid something happens to the patient, you know, in the worst case they die. 
um, those notes are there to have a, an accurate uh, understanding of, of the events that took place. This is why accuracy is, is so important. And you can't fudge that and say it's going to get better over time. Please use our product so we can get it better. You have to get it right from, from the beginning. Um, otherwise, otherwise, there's, a, you know, there's a, a, a trust issue, which comes to my, my, my other point regarding um, uh, you know, the, this venture is the business case. I'm presuming it's going, to, it's going to cost a hell of a lot of money to be able to make it really usable where you, you've got you know, two, two people talking, a doctor and a patient talking, and the, the, res, the result is that the notes are, are very accurate, m- uh, minus some minor, you know, minor errors. Um, then is is there really a business case, and is it really gonna, you know, they they use the term revolutionize. I can't see it revolutionizing healthcare. How many? Uh, uh, let's say let's take let's take take transcribing for now. Not all clinicians are use automated transcribing. It's outsourced to either a receptionist or sorry secretarial staff or internationally somewhere. Um, so even that's not being fully adopted yet. Never mind this next step that they they're trying to put out there. So I think there's a lot of questions around what they're they're doing. And I'm not, I mean, these are massive companies, so I'm, I'm sure they've thought about it. But from my perspective, I don't know how much, how well they've thought about it um, in terms of how big the problem is and whether they're addressing it necessarily in the right way. I, th- I think it's a fascinating point of view, man. And I th- so I, I would, yeah, I, I want to talk about a few things. So, or sum up with a few things here. I think firstly, like we've seen Microsoft move into here, Google and MedPalm 2. And like, th- th- there's a lot going on here with generative AI, large language models, transcription, note-taking. I think the competition is great because actually th- all these things that you're talking about, there's not just one player here, there's multiple. And actually, as these multiple players start to realize the reality of what these things need to do, they're going to compete with each other to get to a point that solves these problems. And... I like your points about digital equity, digital exclusion. I think that's such an important one because who is this really going to benefit? Uh, and are we going to end up seeing clinics set up because they can be transcribed extremely well that have super short waiting lists because they they will fit this model perfectly. And actually, those people that don't even mostly need healthcare are going to get in first. That's a potential outcome. If you're looking at this and you've bought this and you go, we need to get our money's worth here, like that's what we, like, we're, we're going to do. That That might be an option that might cause problems. The other thing on that is this thing we've said before, which is that when you do have brand new technology that is going to benefit some people first, it's always going to benefit some people first, and you need to start somewhere before it can do everything. I think that's another thing that broadly, if it's speeding, if it is speeding things up for a certain group, it is then speeding things up for everyone, in, at least in part. And so that there's that thing that I always come back to. But there's there's more practical bits here actually that this has made me think of, which is if you think about your 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 consultations here, Janet, with your patients right you'll know you'll know certain patients and you'll know you your your interview style and the questions that you ask of certain patients might be slightly unorthodox and what i mean by that is you you might know of a patient that you don't need to specifically ask about a certain red flag because you know deep down that if you ask it, it will embarrass them and then they're not going to be upfront about anything else. But you know also for a fact they're going to tell you if there is that red flag. That's just an example that I've made up. But like 
and that might be a dodgy one for various reasons, but you get the point I'm making, right? You might have a, str- a, a different interview style, right? Now, when that's being summarized, it's going to look like you've not asked about certain red flags. It's going to look like, and, and a way of backing this up might be that they record all of the interactions as well. Do you want every consultation that you have with a patient recorded? Because it's not going to be official necessarily in the way that you're doing things because you're using your knowledge and your experience amassed over years of practicing as a clinician to know what is the greatest interview style for that specific patient, which might differ from what looks good to a transcription service or, or, or an AI service, if you see what I mean. So my, my, my mind goes to how might this actually change consultations? Consultations might become far less human to human in, t- in the way that they're conducted and they might become a lot more sterilized because they have to become more sterilized because if you don't ask about every single red flag, then it's going to look like in the thing that you did. Do you see, do you see where I'm going with this? Like that, that, that's an issue for me. And I think the other thing as well is like, you mentioned the business case and the accuracy, if it, if the accuracy is not perfect, then you need to check as the clinician and the individual and they're going to, and, and and unless they're going to say it's perfect you, and you, you're going to want to go back and check and maybe their way is like, well, it's all recorded at the end of the day. So at the end of the day, we can go back to the recording, but then we're back to point one of like the problem with what that's going to cause. If I now know that everything's being recorded, I'm going to conduct things in a different way. So there's a lot of nuance here that I think needs to be thought about and looked at. But I don't, I don't know if you want to reflect on that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if, you go, if you're going back to recording, um, it defies the point of document on paper. You know, if I'm, if I'm on a ward round uh, in a hospital, um, for sake of argument, I don't want to have to listen to a recording to find out what the doctor did. Did they really say that? Or did they mean something else and the AI got it wrong? Um, so it's just that, that sort of defies the point in, uh, to a large extent. You want to be able to trust what's being written down. Um, so, so, th- so that's why I, I see... I mean, I see the business case of transcription, um, and then the, the doctor can, you know, uh, uh, say whatever they need to say, see on the computer, they can adjust any mistakes, wang, wham, bam, it, that's done, it's quicker, you save admin time, and or save time to buy, or pay for extra admin stuff, and so on. That that makes a business sense. This one, at the moment, I'm, I'm, I've considered myself reasonably intelligent, but I'm struggling to understand where, where, the, where it's going to fit uh, properly. Uh, the only the only way I can see it maybe fit is in the United States to have physicians assistants um, and maybe making that job a bit easier by allowing the clinician to do it and thereby the clinician saves uh, some money. But then that comes to a wider point, which is that you know if they say they're going to revolutionise healthcare, I mean healthcare stretches beyond the United States and we don't have a physician assistants um, necessarily in the UK. So where is it going to fit in in the rest of the world? But your point, the, the first point you made, um, I completely agree. I mean. Uh, a patient comes into my clinic and says, you know, I, I say to them, so, okay, is everything, do you have any discharge down below? You know, down below rather than do you have penile discharge or vaginal discharge? Do you know what I mean? Um, and if I start using medical terminology in order to satisfy the, the robot in the room, then, then, you know, then, as you said, it becomes a very artificial co- uh, conversation. So how they're going to, how they're going to make it more natural, how they're going to make it more natural to colloquialisms and, 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 and so on. That, that's a gigantic challenge. And I don't know whether it's even worth them uh, combining both the points, whether it's even worth them doing it. And even even further to that, in primary care, you've got patient, you have patients who suffer from domestic violence. And, you know, yeah, you can't, you have to almost speak in code a lot of the time and you don't want it recorded. They say, I don't want this to be recorded. 
and we have special tools within electronic uh, records where we don't have it recorded um so that if anybody accesses it they can't if they can't physically see that that recording now if you're having everything recorded or the ai is putting it down it's just an, an extra barrier how is it, how are these systems going then going to integrate into an epr the only the only game i see that they're trying possibly trying to do is use this as a tool uh, seeing themselves as a customer and using this as a tool as part of a, li- a later project they might want to do around them creating eprs and a more holistic service and they will integrate this into their own system but i don't see how they're going to how they're going to integrate into emis or into system 1 or into hospital based uh, eprs uh, necessarily and in a way that's safe and 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 so on so i'm i'm a skeptical I'm hopeful. I, I, I'm optimistic, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical about how how well this is gonna this is gonna play out. Mm. Yeah, very valid points, man. And I think really interesting and different way to think about this. Um, I, yeah, I do want to say uh, anything that makes clinicians' lives easier is great. And I think there is a, there is a world here where you do have those clinics that are documented perfectly. And if that's what they're going towards and that's what they manage to achieve, then it is it's going to do a heck of a job. Um, the, we talked on this, I think, last week about this and how more more from an optimistic perspective as to how, how much um, that could actually help everybody. But there's a lot to get through in terms of these, these very practical issues here. Um, before we we see that sort of nirvana i think but yeah really interesting man cool so our final story today is that bt have launched a virtual ward solution for health tech on the nhs front line so uk teleco bt so the bt that you are thinking of has launched a virtual wards, a monitoring program aimed at giving the NHS and other healthcare providers tools to manage patient care, including apps, AI monitoring, and online patient consultation solutions. So working closely with BT's internal innovation arm, as well as other external healthcare companies, uh, the Teleco has said that it wants to help healthcare tackle some of the main challenges it faces on the front line. Mentions a company that we know very well in Fibris. Um, so Jess, yeah, you've read this. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's an interesting one. So this is a story that we have heard swirling around, I think probably nearly 12 months, if not longer now, um, out in the ether and have kind of been waiting for it to drop. And I think virtual wards is, is always a very interesting topic of debate, shall we say, because it often comes in and out of mode. Um, and I think for a while it it dropped out of interest um, and ultimately is often referred to in, in many different ways. Um, but I think really and truly with virtual wards, there is still this lack of consensus around the actual definition, like how do we define virtual wards? And I've had a lot of long conversations with you know, the Fibris team, Dr. Doctor team, Elliot over at Infinity about what do we actually mean when we talk about virtual wards? And, you know, there are various people doing various things in different ways, but I think what has been identified is that there is no single solution that is a virtual ward. And ultimately what it requires is a series of solutions that join together to create that solution. And it seems to me that's what BT is doing here with the likes of Fibris and MyM Health and, and many others. And, and you know, if we were, I guess, to talk about virtual wards in their purest form, and this is a conversation I had with Elliot, 
is that he was ultimately saying that if you if you want to really talk about a virtual ward, you have to talk about everything from, um, you know, the whole patient journey um, all the way through to, you know, when a patient perhaps first presents, um, diagnosis, monitoring of symptoms, and then the actual virtual delivery of care. And a lot of the emphasis actually is at that earlier stage in the prevention, prioritization, triage, and, and monitoring. But there is generally less emphasis on the the latter end, which is the true d- virtual delivery of care. And, and this is where BT are really focused, is this really earlier part of it. As I said, it's that prevention, prioritization, and monitoring, specifically for high-risk groups. Um, and, and they've said in this article that they want to save you know, thousands of NHS beds to be able to support those high-risk people so that ultimately you end up with a scenario where people don't have to call uh, a doctor if they're experiencing certain symptoms that actually with the integrated dashboards, you know, fla- things are flagged up to clinical teams to be addressed remotely and whether or not they send someone out to, to deal with a particular patient or, or that kind of thing. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's super interesting and I think it's encouraging to see a big company throwing its weight behind this issue, this topic, virtual wards, um, and bringing together, you know, best in class, the likes of Febris who have been doing great work for a really long time around, you know, remote monitoring and supporting these high-risk patients, whether it's through GP practices um, or, you know, even care homes, for example, and really joining up, I suppose, that continuity of care for, for those kinds of people who, who need that sort of support. Um, but I think also, you know, it's worth saying that what they're actually doing in this article is still quite vague. Uh, so there isn't a lot of detail in terms of the actual execution of how that is going to play out in practice. And I think one of the things that we've certainly learned coming back full circle to our first conversation is that in order for these to be successful, you really need to engage the people who are involved at each step of the journey, um, you know, the whole multidisciplinary team to actually support them and reduce their workload as well and make them a really integral part of virtual wards and talking to clinicians and clinical teams who are doing some of this, if not all of this successfully already, um, kind of independently of these, I guess, initiatives. But yeah, I'm interested to see, you know, maybe six, 12 months down the line, some of the outcomes and the impact of this and how they perhaps iterate and what they learn. I think lessons is probably going to be the most interesting thing because as I said, virtual wards doesn't have a really specific and clear definition. And perhaps what we see coming out of the back of this might help us to to define that. Um, and perhaps inform that that latter piece that I talked about around you know the actual virtual delivery of care to make that then a complete service in and of itself. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's huge potential uh, for, for virtual wards because obviously you're scaling monitoring of patients uh, for high-risk groups. And obviously that's a way to reduce pressure on healthcare and admissions and so on. So it, it makes obvious sense um, from, from that perspective. And obviously having, you know, uh, large companies like uh, BT who've got the the pockets as well, all the money in the pocket to be able to fund and to and the expertise in communications and and telecoms and so on to be able to uh, to, to take part in that. I think that's that's always going to be good news for for healthcare. Um, where I get um, where where I think things will need to change is I think in order to get the best out of uh, remote monitoring, pathways will need to be developed or changed with respect to it. So what what I mean is that. Um, often I hear 
uh, it's not just in, in, in necessarily in virtual worlds, but what I often hear is that when we find something on uh, through our product or through our virtual world, we will pass it on to a clinician or we'll pass it on to your GP. Um, the problem is that we already know that these, these pathways are already clogged up without having any extra work or any extra, um, you know, monitoring or anything, anything else being put into them. So when you're increasing that flow of information into a particular clinical setting or to a clinical individual or to a hospital or to a, a group of people and hoping that they will act on it, there needs to be the relevant support in place in order for them to, to, to be able to act on it. So those pathways uh, need to be developed, and not only that, I think care will need to be and, and uh, care will need to be and resources will need to be allocated around the whole virtual the whole virtual world concept because it will it will work, but it needs to be it, it needs to be more than just we will tell somebody or we will give people a bit more information. And there needs to be an entire system around it that allows then those clinicians to react in an appropriate way and in a way that's manageable for them without just clogging up because when you take when you allocate a resource you remember you're taking it away from somewhere else so if you're allocating a nurse to monitor it, to monitor the patients or to visit them that's a nurse that's not going to be monitoring or visiting another patient um so so how you use those resources is really really important but i think it's definitely got a lot of potential and as what jessica said i'm i'm, I'm really keen to follow what happens with it and what they learn from it and i hope that they're open in, in publishing that so that uh, so that others can learn and really uh, make the best of this because I think there's a lot of a lot of possibilities, obvious possibilities, um, with things like COPD, um, community exacerbations of pneumonia, elderly patient falls, um, those sort of high risk patients who clog up hospital beds, unfortunately, and who you know often end up dying as a result uh, or becoming unwell. So yeah, so there's 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 massive potential, but I just want to see more meat to it and understand where where it fits later on in terms of how it's supported um yeah because it, it, in my opinion it'll end up becoming almost like or it may end up becoming for good reason almost a, almost like a, a separate entity in terms of you have primary care you have secondary care you have remote monitoring care and and and, and virtual wards and fine but they need that support just like pcn's support um uh, you know primary care and you've got whatever support secondary care you'll need something bespoke to support these remote wards one of the things that actually i think is also yet to be defined, which you, you sort of touched on there in terms of resource needed to run these. Is as with any solution, any you know new treatment pathway, there is an inherent, I guess, onboarding burden, like a resource burden. And I think because you know maybe we haven't yet truly defined virtual wards and what they are and, and what they need in terms of what the resource that is needed to really integrate these into the right places in the patient journey and within workflows. I think that is also perhaps one of the challenges that perhaps some initiative like this can really help to iron out and help us to understand so that when we're starting to implement these at scale, that is taken into consideration because I think so many or so often, you know, it's very easy to look at, um, you know, the health economics or the economic arguments and the cost savings that perhaps or resource savings are associated with a certain solution, but that that has failed to take into consideration actually what is required to get it set up and get it running and get the the staff trained on it and figure out exactly where it should go. Um, I guess, yeah, along that journey. So I think that'll be interesting to kind of see how, how that pans out and whether or not they're actually able to define that. 
it definitely sounds like clarity is is required. And I think these types of projects where we're actually seeing companies come together from the digital health side, from you know behemoths like BT um, getting involved and, and as you say, throwing their weight into this and actually working towards something. I, th- I think everyone here is really excited to see what happens there. I think the closer that we can get to genuine impact, um, you know, Janaid, your your concerns around structure aside, you know, I think the learning that we can do from this and moving us to a model that works uh, as a result will be a positive. And so, yeah, looking forward to seeing what happens there. Thanks, everybody. Uh, that has been uh, the Health Tech News for this week. Uh, if you want to grab the links to any of those stories, uh, you can head to healthtechpigeon.com uh, and you can subscribe to the newsletter there. Janaid, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Uh, before we let you go, is there anything that you've got coming up that you want to mention? Any uh, any bits and bobs that you're up to that you want to tell our audience about? So I've got my, my website for consultancy work around you. If you want to do digital health, that will be launching in, in a few weeks' time. Um, but you can contact me on LinkedIn um, if uh, discuss sort of, you know, some of the things that I've mentioned and, and where I can help sort of, uh, startups and digital health companies. Um, I've got my own uh, sort of mental health startup uh, in the background as well. And, uh, and that's something that I'll be looking to sort of, you know, mention more on LinkedIn as I go forward. But all I can say is anybody interested in sort of alternative views uh, around digital health, please just connect with me on, on LinkedIn. And, uh, and yeah, and, and uh, even if you agree or disagree with me or, or my methods, uh, just, just, you know, yeah, just link, link with me, connect with me and, and, yeah, and express your views. And the more opinions we get out there and we'll more be able to flesh out some of the, some of the nitty gritty things and, and, and make things better for everybody, which is uh, including the patients primarily, which is what we're all here for anyway. Do you know what? Debate is great and we never get anywhere if everyone just all all agrees with each other. So thank you for being a platform for that and providing points of view that we need to hear. Absolutely. Um, Janae, it's been a pleasure. Jess, you, thanks for joining me. Uh, I will see and hear from all of you listeners next week.